Let's talk about peace. Our guest today, Alafia, which means peace, shares her story of resilience through a tumultuous marriage to finding peace for herself and her children. Welcome to an episode in our Girl, I've Been There Too series. This series profiles our sisters who have been where you are. They know the stress, pain, confusion, relief, anger, and everything in between that you are feeling about divorce because they've been there too. This is real life and real talk because sometimes that's what we really need. They are sharing their experiences so that you too will know that you are not alone, that your grown girl community is behind you, and that you're grown. You got this. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have agreed that you will remain anonymous during the interview to protect your privacy. But to let our listeners connect with you, I'd like for you to share with us just a little bit about your background, you know, where you're from, your education or your professional background, and what your perfect Saturday morning looks like. Okay, wonderful. So I am a transplant living in the Dallas area. I grew up in Manhattan in the Bronx. My parents are Trinidadian, Mm -hmm. and they are the traditional Trinidadians where they came to the U.S. They worked for over 30 years and they went back home. (laughs) So my parents now retired back in Trinidad. I have three amazing children. They are now 23, 21, and 17. My last one is a young man going into his senior year of high school. And I'm so excited. Yeah. excited more excited than he is I think (laughs) and my perfect Saturday has really evolved because my Saturday used to be all about the kids getting up and taking my children to gymnastics competitions and that uh, you know sort and so it's so amazing I get up on a Saturday morning and a start I jump out of my bed I'm like where am I supposed to be oh my goodness and then I realize I don't have to be anywhere oh I can't wait I cannot wait for that I am not there it is an amazing and a feeling and I I get up and I can work out um I can eat leisurely do um do my knitting I I'm amazed I'm amazed I am now dating a wonderful man and if I'm so lucky we are together and we can plan out our day and do something but I can tell you, um, I'm still figuring out my Saturdays, but it usually incorporates, includes something that's athletic and um, relaxing. Oh my goodness. I I love that. I, I can't wait to get to that point. I am certainly still on the running around Saturday mornings between, you know, soccer and a cross country match or something, meet, something. Um, but at some point I'm going to, I'm going to get there. Exactly. And enjoy them because I do have days that, you know, I don't miss the running around, but I miss the camaraderie of the other parents. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I really enjoyed sharing the love of the sport with other parents and with my child. Yes. Um, Cause they, this gives you like one-on-one time with your child and encouraging them. So I, I don't um, miss the, again, the running around, but I do miss the 
the interaction. Yeah, was- no, I, we all go through, right. The, the phases and, and stages as they kind of grow and develop. Um, and, you know, in your kind of, you know, introductory background, you reference dating and, and I want to get to that later. Cause that's really exciting as we talk about, um, the divorce process and, and post-divorce life. So definitely want to get into that, but I want to start a little bit in kind of really understanding what your overall kind of exposure to divorce was even before your own divorce. Did you have any kind of exposure or experience with divorce before kind of going into this process? So, you know, it's an interesting question. The So my ex-husband, his parents both married and divorced three times. Oh, wow. So, you know, he had that experience. Whereas I come from the background where there's, um, if you know any, if any of your listeners are West Indian, they might be familiar with this. But there is just the, people tend to stay together, the older couples stay together, you know, longer. And they just um, separate not even separate, put up with, uh, acknowledge, I I don't know if the right word is infidelities and transgressions. It's just more, I don't even want to say widely accepted, tolerated. That's probably the better word, tolerated. Okay. Okay. So my, my um, exposure to divorce really would be for my younger peers, not really for my parents. And, but I can honestly say healthy relationships were not modeled. Okay. So that being said, a lot of the issues in my marriage, I chose to accept. And I think, again, many of your listeners would probably understand this, (laughs) commiserate with um, just the lack of understanding of what healthy looks like and continuing to accept it. And so divorce for me was not a norm, but the behaviors that lead to what I believe are the causes for many divorces was very prevalent. So that's really interesting because, you know, when we think about how things shape our experience, um, and certainly we know that things shape how we um, grow and develop our own upbringing, right? Um, Especially as children, we see things going on around us, whether we know uh, the naming of them, we'll say it that way, right? We we see things and we experience and feel things um, that really aren't realized until later. And so- I'm, you know, when I think about this idea of modeling healthy relationships and how important that is, especially when we have children in the home, um, that a lot of times that translates into the later years in our own kind of marriages and, and relationships, which in the context of divorce, especially having kids, we know that a lot of women stay in a marriage, right? For, and I'm going to put this in air quotes for the kids, but I'm thinking in, in terms of healthy relationship and modeling a healthy relationship. When you think about your own divorce and your own marriage, how important was it for you to kind of move in a different direction for the kids? And it is so interesting that you phrased it that way, because I tell people all the time, if I did not have children, I would still be married because I would just put up with his, you know what, Okay. literally. And I 
truly made the decision to divorce because I did not want my children believing that the way they felt they saw me being treated was acceptable. Wow. And that was a very, that to me was the motivation to finally say no more. Okay. Um, but I can honestly, honestly say that I would have just continued coexisting with my ex-husband. Um, I, you know, we probably would not have been intimate. We probably would have just, you know, continued on um, coexisting, yeah. but it would not have been, I would not have sought a divorce. Um, and my children wanting better for my children, wanting my children to expect more from an adult relationship and to give more in an adult relationship was really the motivation for me to you do know, it. The fact that you recognized that in saying, I need to do something because I've got these kids who are watching what's happening here and I want better for them. I don't want them to expect that this is okay. Um, is, is really, um, incredible when you think of the strength by which that had to take for you to come to that because you've, you've, you know, admitted, look, maybe the, he and I would still be coexisting. Um, but, but for the kids, when you saw it within yourself to say, nope, I, you know, if nothing else, despite everything else, I, I have to do it for them at the point that you kind of realized I got to go right. Or we've got to make this, this change. How long have you guys, you know, been married and how long, how old were the kids? Like what, you know, in, in looking back here, you are married, have kids, you know, tell me what things look like from this kind of 30,000 foot view. Right. So we were married for almost 18 years. Wow. Okay. Um, and to really give the, the backstory, because I think it really helps your listeners understand that they are not alone and the crazy that happens in their world. My, do my daughter, who was 16, 17 at the time, is the one who discovered the infidelity. Okay. And, and that's heartbreaking. If you think about your child, your daughter, not even for you as the mom who wants to protect your children from the evils of the world and the you know, bad things, but just to have her image of her dad really just eradicated sure. <laughs> in an instant. Sure. And she was already very, she was already very suspicious, which is why, again, I mean, okay. if you think your children don't know you're hiding something in the house, give it up. They know where everything is. Yes. They have checked every closet. They know where all the Christmas gifts are hidden. Every, I mean, they know. They just know. And exactly. And so she was ultimately searching seriously for okay. the proof of what she felt. And go figure that it was my child searching for proof of what she felt versus me, yeah. right? Because I just chose to just not think that anything, yeah. And um, and so I had a junior going into senior year high school student. Uh, I had my middle daughter who at the time would have been 14, okay. 15, but thankfully she was consumed with gymnastics and had her gymnastics teammates as a family there that, that really helped buffer. And then I had my son who um, at that time would have been 10, maybe 11. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and actually he had not started middle school yet. So that was also a good thing to remember too, because that was part of the transitioning. Um, and so 
you know, 18 years is a long time. Yes. And I remember my ex-husband not coming to me and saying, oh, my love, I'm so sorry. I really want to find a way to make this work. But coming to me and saying, can't we at least stay together to get at least one child out, out of high school? Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, not happening. No, no. I mean, and this is, I mean, again, more context to let you know, again, healthy, not versus non-healthy relationships. The same person, when I found out about the infidelity, I went immediately to my GYN to get tested for sexually transmitted diseases. And ladies, it's absolutely okay to go to your doctor and do these things. Yes. And when I found out that thankfully I was clean, I remember telling him I went and got tested and I just want to let you know, not that you care that I'm clean. And his response was, I'm so sorry. Not, not, it was not, I'm sorry, or any apologies. It was, of course, I'm always careful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What do you even do to that? Right? Like how does that even respond to something? Cause in my head, I'm thinking I'm so angry and, and confused and, and upset going to my OBGYN in the first place. Right. Exactly. Have this conversation with, can we Cause I can only imagine if something had come back positive, I will be the first to tell you they would be locking me up because I, I, I mean, yes. see, yeah. and, and you know, and in reality, I must have, I've had a situation in the past where I couldn't figure out what had happened. And now I understand what it was. Yeah. Um, but just, I mean, that to me underscored my decision, right? These are things that you look back and you're thinking, Oh my God, Lord, you were giving me so many signs, so many indicators, and I just chose to brush them away, ignore them, hope that I was wrong, doubt myself. Yes. And again, that's the whole gaslighting process of you start thinking it's it's you. It's not you, it's me. It's you. <laughs> it's not right. me, it's you. Right. Yes. Yeah. I I you have a daughter who's now found out about infidelity. I'm now, you know, checking to make sure I'm okay. And we also have two other kids at home and figuring things out. Were you also then to add to all of those things working? So trying to balance kind of work or during this process, were you a stay at home mom? Like, where were you? Cause I'm going to get to why the ask. Right. So I had taken a step back from so when we moved to Texas, we moved for his job. Okay. And so when we moved for his job, I chose to work as a contractor. Um, and, and my background is engineering. So I had a specialty of doing um, technology implementation, mm-hmm. helping users adopt new technology. Absolutely loved doing that. And that contract was with a major wirehouse. Um, and I say all this because since I was doing a non-traditional work route, yes, I was not receiving benefits. Okay. I was not, so I was no longer doing retirement savings because obviously if you're not getting it through your employer, right. it takes an extra step to yes. contribute to your IRAs. And I was not doing that because my, all the things were going into my spouse and we were going to be together forever. So why worry about it? Yes. So I was working, but I was working a, a little more. In the beginning, it was a lot of travel. I was actually traveling Monday through Friday, which is again why I missed out on a lot of signs or chose to ignore a lot of signs. Okay. But I was working Monday through Friday, 
relying on au pairs for assistance for childcare, relying on neighbors and friends to help with the picks up, pick up, pickups and drop offs. Yeah. Um, but I was working as a long winded answer to say I was working, yeah. but I wanted to give the background of what I think often happens for women is that we tend to do, we tend to take employment that's flexible or works with our family to our detriment. Yes. So that's leading me where I was headed because when we think about all of the balls that are in the air that we're all, you know, we're juggling, one of the things that we certainly know at the time of a divorce is the financial impact and the financial considerations um, that go into the decision of do I stay or do I go? And one of the things that you were just talking about, retirement savings, benefits, you know, these things that as you're sitting in the space of trying to realize, all right, what happens if I get divorced? That oftentimes freezes someone in the space of saying, well, I've got to stay because I just don't have the financial ability to do it. Um, and, and we know, you know, that means more than just kind of something to pay the bills, but it's all of the, the other things. So what helped you in terms of kind of considering what financial changes you might be looking at both for employment purpose but in, you know, how am I going to make kind of ends meet given the job that I have at this moment and these kids and, you know, it certainly will be a life change. What helped you kind of say, I got to get a plan, put things in, in place to make things move in the way that I need it. Boy, I wish I, I had that thought process of I've got to get a plan. Okay. Um, I can honestly say, Kimberly, that I was very naive. Um, and I think that also plays to the people with whom you interact. Um, I will never forget when things were hard. The answers that people would give me would be the same thing that I would have said if I had never gone through the process. And that's ultimately what's guided me to make the changes I made. So when I first, when the divorce first started and I engaged a lawyer, when he found out that I was traveling, he encouraged me to find a job that would not have me travel because if things, literally the way he said it, if things got bad, I would, you would be the one asked to leave the house because you're already out of the house five days a week. Okay. And I said, well, I can't, I'm already away from my children. I don't want to be away from them anymore. So I went to the employer with whom I was doing the contract work and asked them to transition from the technology side to the finance side. Okay. And I can honestly say I didn't do it because I love financial services. I just knew I'd be a great advisor. I did it because I just needed to work and I needed to, I needed a job. And I knew in a larger company, I could find a place to fit in where there would be training and so, and so forth. And I was correct. I mean, it also helped that I'm a black woman and sad to say there are not that many black women in financial services. Sure. So the eagerness to in, include me, um, didn't hurt. Right. So I, I, I transitioned to a more traditional nine to five type role okay. where I wasn't traveling anymore. That being said, when the divorce was first filed, we were still cohabitating. Okay. And 
unfortunately had a domestic violence incident. Okay. And with the domestic violence incident, he was removed from the house. Okay. Yep. Um, when he was removed from the house, he refused to pay any bill. So when I paint the picture for you all, I was living in an almost 4,000 square foot house on almost an acre of land with a pool and had a mortgage that was almost $4,000 a month. Okay. I just transitioned to a new job. So even though it's a transition, I'm still low man on the totem pole. So I'm probably making just a little more than I felt like I was making when I graduated from college. And I was already 40, over 40 years old. So it's 20 years later and I'm making almost the same thing. And that's what I explained to women because now I'm in financial services. This is my niche about staying. If you, if you come off the income growth curve, which we do often as women, we take time out to take care of our children, take time, time out to take care of family. We go in and out of the job market. Yes. Finding ways to maintain and manage our income is so important. So for me, I started basically starting a new job. My husband has been removed from the house and I have to find a way to come up with $4,000 a month yeah. and mow an acre of land and keep the pool from turning green Yes, and keep my children sane, keep myself sane. It was the most financially stressful, painful time of my life. And in the beginning, when, you know, first I dwindled away the money that was in the account because I could still access that. Sure. Then I asked my parents and you can, you know, you don't want to go to your parents. I mean, you right. feel like you, it's not their problem. And so I went to my parents um, and I had to, you know, thankfully I was working with a, uh, domestic violence support organization in my town. And they accompanied me every time I had to go to court because unfortunately there was a lot of court involvement. Um, and I also had to engage my lawyer for assistance. And thank goodness for lawyers. Yes. And the, and what I was told by my lawyer, because when I said, you know, he's not paying anything, I have no idea what to say. And his response was, if she wants those kids, she can take care of them which I would never tell my children. Right. And these are the hurtful, horrible things that you don't want your children to hear. Um, my lawyer informs me that, well, you need to file an enforcement. Okay, well, how much is that going to cost? Yeah. $2,500. I, if I had $2,500, I probably, probably wouldn't be calling you right, right. now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and by the grace of God, I got a phone call from a friend who... Um, just out of the blue, knew that I was going through a difficult time and, and was actually inviting me to come visit so that I could get a rest. And I explained to her, I, right now it's not a good time. I, this is where I am. This is what the situation is. And she goes, I'll send you money every month until the divorce is done. I know you're oh good for it. Oh my God. And I, I tell you, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners are religious or spiritual, but I just knew just knew someone was watching over me yeah. and they helped me get over the finish line. And the divorce took a year, a year. And by the time everything was said and done, I owe them over $20,000. Yeah. But one of the first things I did was sell that 4,000 square foot. First thing. <laughs> first thing. And exactly. And buy my little house, my little postage stamp yard. Yep. And took them, you know, I, put down enough into the new home so that no matter what I did, I could always afford my mortgage. Cause that's another thing too. I work with my clients of ensuring because financial stress 
is an anxiety that is overwhelming. It affects your health. It affects your relationships. It affects so many pieces of your life. And so I now have a mortgage that if I choose to work at Starbucks, it'll be okay. And I paid back my debts and I started from scratch. And so I can honestly say that naively, I did not go into my divorce with a plan. I honestly say, even those who have a plan, I can tell you, God will laugh at it. Yes. Um, so you can prepare as much as you can. You you do that. I I encourage if I if I have to look back, lessons learned. Yeah. If I have to look back to what I would have done differently, I would have fought, I would have sought a lawyer who would have partnered me with a financial professional. Okay. That is something that I try very hard to do with my client, with my legal colleagues, is be their partner because I'm like a realtor. You don't pay me to, for education. Right. It is to my benefit that you are an educated client so that when we do a financial strategy, you're not asking me, well, why did you put my money there? Or why are we investing over there? You're a partner in this. Right. We are deciding together. So it is to your benefit to me as a lawyer to have a financially educated client. And if I had was if I was able to engage with somebody who was a financial professional, I would have understood so much more. Okay. I would have done better planning. I would have done something as simple as taking out term life insurance on my ex-husband. You know, I mean, so many things that I wish I had known. And I think people assume you're college educated. You must know. No, no, you don't. This is not your world. Divorce is not my everyday. That's right. Um, I I mean, listen, I I could listen to you all day and I'm, you know, steadily like jotting down all of these like notes because there are so many things I want to touch on. Because you lay out so many things that I don't want to gloss over, right? So this component about the experience of it going from really zero to a hundred, which can happen very quickly in the divorce process. Um, And oftentimes there isn't time to plan. And even if you have kind of laid out things and prepared in many ways. The process really often is a bumpy road and there are some roadblocks and, and pit stops and all kinds of things. I certainly am one who thinks preparation is really important if you have the ability to do so. And I say that because you mentioned domestic violence and I, I wanna take the opportunity to just kind of say that preparation should only take priority so long as safety is in place. And so if one is not in a safe environment, then get the assistance of a domestic really a domestic violence advocate or support team that can help you first and foremost come up with a safety plan. And then all of the other process things can kind of fall in place. It sounds like you had at least the wherewithal to connect with or have your lawyer connect you with a domestic violence advocate after the incident occurred. Tell me a little bit about that. Cause I, I really, I think it's so important for, you know, listeners to really, who are in these spaces to understand that need, you cannot navigate this process alone in what I'll call is quote, ordinary circumstances. But certainly if you're in a domestic violence situation, you absolutely need help 
by people who are trained to work as advocates for domestic violence. So do you mind just kind of helping us understand that space and how you got connected to that? And then we'll talk about some of the other financial pieces that, that you referenced. So Kimberly, I mean, I know we're anonymous and then you can absolutely give my information to anyone because the challenge I think people have is that there's a face to domestic violence then I don't look it. And people look at themselves in the mirror and say, I'm not like her. Right. And then that is, I think the challenge that people have is understanding that domestic violence is not someone, it's not always someone who gets hit in the head every day or, you know, beaten up. I mean, violence can happen through verbal, yeah. mental abuse, emotional abuse. There's so many factors. Um, and I live in the richest county in Texas. Okay. So you can only imagine that there's this image that I think people feel needs to be upheld. Sure. Um, so I had filed for divorce and we were cohabitating even after I filed. Um, the incident happened afterward and I had no idea what to do. The police were called and the, the irony of all this is he's the one who called the police. Okay. <laughs> Go figure. And I hadn't done anything. That's the, that I, if anything, I didn't even know something had happened. And the, the officer is the one who knows the blood on me. Okay. So, you know, so it, it takes telling you that it was a traumatic, it, tra- traumatic experience. That being said, when everything happened, I went to my lawyer and obviously conveyed what happened and what do I do next? And he's the one who said it would be better for you to have the guidance or the the services of the district attorney's office. Oh, wow. Yes. And so I said, okay. Um, And so I contacted district attorney's office and I think they're the ones who put me in touch with the local domestic violence organization that they're partnered with. Okay. And that's how I got to them. It wasn't through my lawyer. It wasn't through a friend. It was not through anyone. And I can honestly tell you, Going there, I was embarrassed. You know, I was embarrassed to have to walk in the doors of a domestic violence program. I I mean, really. And and interestingly, that I was more embarrassed by that than when my ex-husband had lost his job and I had to file for WIC benefits because it was for my kids, right? You don't care. Yes. You will do what's necessary. I will get my WIC benefits. And we, you know, we were only on utilizing the WIC benefits for maybe three months or so, but it, it definitely, you know, definitely helped. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm trying to make is it was a humbling experience to do that. And I did not, I can honestly tell you, did not get there through my lawyer, did not get there through friends. Mm-hmm. I got there through my interactions with the assist- assistant district attorney okay. for the county. Thank you. I- because one, I don't know, you know, if people realize that, you know, whether it's district attorney or in, in some counties, it's the state's attorneys, um, you know, you can get to and connected with domestic violence agencies that are connected. And here's the, I, I think what's interesting about how you connect to them. Oftentimes the thought is, those services and resources are based on econ- socioeconomic status. And so many times um, it, people who are in need and need meaning I'm a domestic violence victim, 
don't utilize or disregard the access to services because the thought is it's social economic and that is not um that is not correct you did say you know there violence comes in many forms and it absolutely does including financial violence um and and financial abuse is a big component especially in um, what I would say, upper middle class and wealthy families. Um, it, it is prevalent. And oftentimes we don't recognize it in its truest form as, um, you know, domestic abuse or, or, or violence because of this thought process that we all go through. We've reached a financial level. We are successful from um, all Instagram appearances, right? But I heard many, many years ago when I was, working with um, domestic violence victims, a woman was speaking about how the number of calls um, to say police stations are often higher in apartment buildings um, and in closer um, quarters. And people often think that's why it's such a social economic issue that DV only occurs in you know, um, housing um, projects or in these huge apartment buildings, but it's because somebody else can actually hear what's going on. Or there are a lot of people around who are seeing things. That's very different when you live in a 4,000 square foot home. There's nobody else who can hear what's happening inside that house. You know, your neighbor is hundreds of yards away. So no, they're not calling unless they see something that may happen in the garage, you know, in the driveway, but in these private communities or, you know, in the neighborhoods where, um, you know, it's an affluent community, the chances are that the rates are just as high, if not higher than in kind of a closer quarters, but people aren't able to call or assist in ways because they just, they just don't know. So I say that because I do think it's so important and thank you for shining light on, you know, it, it, it domestic violence does not care whether you're rich or poor, it, it, it can, you know, cross the threshold in, for anyone's household. And, and certainly we want to make sure that people are safe um, and, and get the help and services that they need. I do want to shift gears a little bit to talk about the finance piece, right? Because, you know, trying to manage the mortgage and lawyer, you know, fees and groceries and all of these things. And here you're working and you said, you know, your attorney said, well, you got to file for enforcement just uh, for a point of clarification, just so everybody knows Enforcement means an order has been entered and now you're going back to court to do just that, enforce it. Um, and so regardless of the jurisdiction that you're in, there is a separate process that the first step is to get the actual order. And then the second step is if somebody is violating or not complying with the order, then you have to go back. And I will say it is often throwing good money after bad. And, and you mentioned that here your lawyer is saying, well, yeah, you can get, you know, we can go in and, and file to enforce it. It's going to cost you. And you're making the decision and saying, well, if I had that money, I wouldn't 
then, you know, need the help that I, that I'm asking you. So as you're figuring this out and you had the blessing of a friend to support you, what were your thoughts in terms of once I get to this finish line? Cause it sounds like you were able to keep the house. So here I am at the finish line. What was top of mind financially for you in trying to unwind in the divorce? Did it have more to do with kind of the income and support side or was it about, let me get whatever assets we can so that I can then maybe sell or do something later? Where were you thinking in terms of how can we shake this out so that I might be somewhat okay? Right. So, you know, understanding what okay was back then is, is probably where we want to shine light. And this goes back to wishing that I had been able to engage a financial professional at, during that process, okay. because I, and I, you know, I was just, my first thought was paying off my debts and getting to a place that I was financially whole. Okay. Where I pay my bills um, with the salary I was earning, take care of my kids. You know, I was, I wasn't forward thinking enough. I was not thinking about 65 year old me. I was not thinking about 80 year old me. I was thinking about 2020, no, 20, what is it? 17, 2018 me. Okay. You know, how do I just get through the next year and recover from the, cause I could buy groceries on a credit card. Yeah. I mean, let's, you know, let's, let's think about it. But cash flow wise, there are many things you could do with, on a credit card, but I can't pay my mortgage with a credit card. Right. So really that was the, the biggest issue for me because not that I'm in, not that I'm encouraging credit card debt, right. but but you could there is a way exactly. There's a cash flow management tool yes. that can be utilized, <laughs> and I and I was utilizing it. So I, you know, that 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 was covered. Um, and so I was only thinking about how do I cover my living, my, okay. the the ability to live. That was it. Yep. I wish I was able to work with a financial professional who would have sat down with me to talk about how to allocate and reallocate assets, um, how to how to better fight for marital property that was not classified as such. Okay. Um, you know, understanding things like that. That's what I'm talking about. It's, you know, just having the financial education yeah. is, uh, is, would have been just amazing for me because I may have fought more for qualified funds that would have better fed into my future retirement income needs. And again, I'm not thinking about that. And that's what a financial professional thinks about for you, right? When you engage a fitness professional, they're working you towards the desired goal you. They're not, you know, they acknowledge where you are today, but they have the foresight of what is necessary to get you to next year. You as yourself, with all the knowledge you have, and if you don't have any other knowledge, then you're only thinking about tomorrow. You're not thinking about 20 years from now. And that is where the uh, professionals come in and they say, okay, you know, stop gap. Yes, we can address tomorrow, but we need to also think about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And I wish, wish that I had that guidance. No, and and that's fair point to say, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, And most people don't know right? You don't know what to ask for. You don't know what is better to gain, whether it is a qualified benefit plan versus the, you know, um, cash account, 
you don't know whether to keep the house or not. And so having somebody to help you think through some of these decisions, because let's be honest, your head is in a fog, right? There's so much happening. Nobody expects to be going through a divorce. There's a lot going on. And so having somebody who has the ability to say, let's think about this as we prepare to negotiate or as you're going to trial, you know, what about this? And so having good people in your corner to support you who actually know what they're doing can certainly make all the difference. But let's talk about, because you've referenced a lawyer, how did you go about finding a lawyer? How did you get connected with with your attorney? (laughs) So I had two, technically three attorneys in the entire process. Okay. So when I initially filed, I used the attorney who was a fellow um, Boy Scout parent. Okay. So it wasn't that I went on a Google search or got a referral from a friend, which I would better, I would more recommend that. Um, But I didn't have friends who were getting divorced. So I had no, I I didn't know where to go. Um, But I knew that this person was a family law attorney. And so I sought that advice and and got it. Um, The attorney worked with me through the divorce filing and the divorce finalization. Okay. And this is again, when the education comes into play for your listeners. So because of the lack of compliance from my ex, which by the way, the enforcement didn't make a difference. um, And that's another thing too, people have to understand if you have, if you're dealing with someone who doesn't care, right? Because for, for many people, just that act of being told to do something, you're going to do it, right? right. You're most people are compliant and you understand, especially when there are children involved. Yes. When you have somebody who's like, screw you, I'm not going to do anything you say, there's not much recourse. Right. No one shows up at, at someone's door, puts a gun in someone's head, and takes them to the ATM and demands that they pull out money. That is just not the way it happens. Right. There's And, you know, many people, their response was, well, why don't you just garnish your wages? Okay, that doesn't happen either. <laughs> so... We, you know, we got through the divorce process and we did find, you know, for the child related expenses, the child support that had to be garnished again, because he would not willingly pay. So, but because it's child support, it was garnishable. Um, The other financial um, decisions, determinations were, he had to pay me. And of course he refused. Yes. So I had to go back again to file an enforcement. And my lawyer at that point was like, I am not dealing with him ever again. Okay. You're, I, I refuse to do this. I'll, and now it's a civil matter. That's another thing too. Now it's a civil matter. Okay. Because it's money he owes you. Yep. So he referred me to another lawyer who I did not feel was giving me any attention. And through my mental health professional, because by then I was engaged. Well, actually I had started engaging her. That's another thing too. Please listeners, mental health professional, absolutely, absolutely necessary. Wonderful, wonderful and needed. And my mental health professional said, well, there's a lawyer who might be able to help you. And she referred me to someone else who was amazing. Cause I walked in the door and of course I'm teary eyed and said, he was supposed to do this and that and he did that. And she's like, okay, knock it off. Yes. And you want that, you're not going to get that. Yep. You might get this. Okay, definitely you're going to get this. I mean, she just kind of laid it out, managed my expectations very, very well. Okay. Filed the enforcement. 
and ended up, because of course he refused to acknowledge the enforcement, putting liens on his investment properties. Okay. Yes. But again, that's still not money in hand. That's so right. it's liens that are aging with an interest rate accrual. But if you, as your, you know, for your listeners, you need your money yesterday. That's right. This is painful and it's on you. Yeah. It's totally on you. It is more money behind more money. Yes. And, and that's why when I, I'm not a lawyer, but when I work with my clients and I'm working on financial strategies, I always say, if you could get an, a, sum, a lump sum today, what would that be? Right. What would it absolutely be? And, and, you know, that's kind of where we strategize from versus a payout on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, whatever it may be. Um, but I've went through three lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. You know, I, I think that it's before. So I had to hire a lawyer because the property investment properties are in another state. So when I did the liens on the properties, I had to hire a separate attorney in that state. So Kimberly, I have had four lawyer engagements. You had four lawyer engagements and I'm going to, you know, step out on a limb and assume that none of them worked for free. No, you want to know. And even though I cried, I thought that might, you know, appeal to their hearts. No, no. They have, they have bills to pay too. They, yes. Yes. Divorce lawyers too pay bills. But here's what's so interesting about what you were saying about the process of having different lawyers, right? So you started out with one who took you throughout what we call the pre-decree or the pre-judgment process, right? So that's the process by which you file the divorce and it's up until the time of entry of judgment. And whether that's by settlement um, or by trial, that's the pre-judgment phase. And then there's the post-judgment phase, right? So now you have a, ju a judgment, you're divorced, there's orders in place. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that the post-judgment phase, in fact, can be longer and more expensive than the pre-judgment phase. And I, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news on that piece, but this is also why I think it's critically important that in the pre-judgment phase, that you work with the right professionals to help you during that phase. Because pre-judgment phase, you want to work with somebody who can manage your expectations, which you referenced. You want to work with somebody who is going to be very upfront and clear in saying, okay, here's how the process is going to be laid out and, and really kind of educate you through the process because it can take time. And this idea that I'm going to walk in and I need child support today, or I need my bills paid today, newsflash, it's a process. And depending on the state that you live in, depending on your judge, depending on the lawyers involved, it's not a, I walk in with this ask and I walk out with what I what I want, in most cases, it's I file what I'm asking for. And sometime later, we might get a response, whether it's from the other side or, or court. So I, I don't want to be the doomsday person, but I think it's important to share, especially if someone is going through the process right now, that if you feel like things are kind of moving slow or dragging, or, or you're really kind of feeling frustrated about the process, 
it is important to check in with counsel and making sure that they are doing what they are supposed to be doing. That That's really important. But also really taking stock and knowing the court is inundated with hundreds, thousands of cases and every case cannot be kind of prioritized in the way that most people would want them to be, one. And then two, that there is a cost involved. And so be very, very clear on what your finances will allow because your responsibility to pay those fees is just that. It's your responsibility, even if you have at some point an, an order that says your spouse um, has to contribute or, or pay. Or reimburse. Or, be, or reimburse. I tell people, don't bank on that though, right? And and so that, you know, it's, I thank you so much for saying, look, I went through four people at differing stages, had different experiences, but having that and, and going through that, I think is, is really important to understand in terms of process. I do want to talk though now about your kids and you have, you know, three kids who were, you know, older and, and by older, meaning that they, in some levels kind of knew what was going on in terms of process, parents getting divorced, you know, what, conversations did you have? We know you mentioned your daughter kind of found out about, you know, the infidelity. So she was on radar clearly, you know, she's, she's older. Um, but what conversations did you have, whether it's by yourself or with your spouse, um, or even through a mental health provider to kind of talk to them about the divorce and the changes that might be inevitable? How did you go about having those conversations? So I, I didn't do it well, um, you know, and the, the encouragement is to work with your partner to convey the change to your family as a unit. That did not happen. Um, I filed and took my kids to IHOP and sat them down and said, I just want to let you know that I filed and my daughters were like, okay, we're not surprised. My son was like, what are you talking about? And interestingly, thankfully, he was naive enough because there's about a four-year gap because my older, my oldest one told her sister, because it's only about two and a half year difference between the two of them. So they were in, they were communicating about what she found. And I'm sure she was very explicit about the information. And so they had more insight than a little nine, 10 year old. Um, so that being said, my son, I think, took it really, really hard. My girls took it hard too. And this is why I also encourage your listeners to invest in mental health support for your kids because they know that, you know, my mental health professional was amazing for me. She told me, do not be surprised if your kids align with your ex-husband. And I'm like, what? I treat them so much better. I'm yes. such a great mom. He's the one who made the mistake, blah, 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 whatever it may be. And she goes, because they can see that you're okay in the sense that you've got friends and family who are here to support you. You, They know, they can see that you've got 
a, a, a unit, you know, around supporting you. Whereas they may envision that dad is on his own and he's the victim and he's being vilified. And so, you know, they don't want any of their parents to be hurt. So they're, they may align with him just because they feel that he might not be, he might have not have support. And having that information helps. It really, really helps because you have to remember that you are not a victim, right? right? And that's a hard thing sometimes because you feel like things are just happening to you. Um, and so having a mental health professional guide you through how to manage this, how to understand the actions around you really, really helped. Now, my middle one, she was a, a really competitive gymnast. And um, I had asked her, I asked each of my children separately, is there anything you want to ask me? And, and then my mental health professional said, your job is to make sure that they stay children. So you're, you do not sit them down and say, your dad is having sex with you know, prostitutes and we're getting a divorce. That is inappropriate. You, you let them, you only give them as much information as necessary for a child. And you tell them when they come to you with concerns saying, mommy's got this, you don't have to worry about this. Your job is to just be a student, do your, you know, that, that's what I want you to focus on. And that was very hard because my kids as adults now still feel, so I don't know what the balance is that I should have told them more. Okay. Still feel that, still felt to feel that um, they already knew. So me trying to act like I got things going, like when he, their dad was in paying bills and so forth was, you know, why, why, why keep that from them? Right. They knew. Um, and so I, 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 when you interview someone who's a mental health professional, who's gone through a divorce, by all means, I'd love to hear, you know, tell me, tell me that episode number. Cause I'm really going to make sure I zero in on that one. Um, but my middle one, I asked her, I said, are you okay? Is there anything you want to talk to me about? No, mommy, I'm fine. I'm okay. Okay. Oh, okay. So she had gymnastics practice every morning at like seven in the morning. So we get up and I take her to the practice and I'm like, okay, have a good day, honey. Okay. I get a call, not even an hour later from her coach. She's hysterical. And my daughter is hysterical and they cannot calm her down. And she just keeps screaming. I hate him. I don't know why he did this. And so what I realized is that my daughter waited till she got to her comfort zone, her place of her family and expressed all of those things there rather than break down at home. And she's like, I don't know what to do. I said, you know, do you want do she, my, her coach was like, I don't know what to do. We're trying to calm her down, but she's really, really upset. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know. I was ready at work. I didn't, yeah, you know, it was, it was hard all around, yeah. but your children, it's, it's hard. You don't, you know, they're little, little humans, they're little people, and they're navigating it themselves. And if they're older, which I'm grateful, I'm so grateful that my kids are older, because that was less time that I had to interact with my ex-husband, because it was contentious. Um, but I, I work with clients now, and the children are very young. Right. And you have to figure out a co-parenting. I can honestly say for your listeners that we have never co-parented. Okay. Ever. ever. So... 2017, my oldest graduated from high school. So technically she was off the rolls, if you want to say that. She still lived at home here, but, you know, that was one. But then for the younger two, so had high school for my middle one. And now you see my last one's a senior in high school, but that was middle school he was starting. So that was five years, yep. uh, actually six years of, of interaction um, or lack of interaction. Or lack thereof, yeah. And, and that is not... I, I totally get that is not the way to do it. Now, granted, for my sanity, it worked out just fine. Um, it was not like I had someone 
undermining and, and calling school and you know, saying, I, I, I forbid my children to be vaccinated. I forbid my children right. to, you right. know, so that worked out well because I know that there are women who have to manage situations where mm -hmm. they want a certain parent and that might be the cause of your divorce. You have a different parenting style. You believe in, um, you know, a certain religion or whatever it may be. And that's why working with a parenting specialist, I do a lot of collaborative divorce work. I work the financial neutral and collaborative divorce, collaborative divorce cases. Um, and I am always impressed with couples engage a parenting specialist to help them work through a parenting plan. Sure. Um, and actually they're child specialists and they help them work through parenting plans. And so I, I would have loved to engage someone like that if I felt like I was working with a cooperative partner. Okay. Well, and, and not everybody is, and, and certainly, you know, there is such a thing as parallel parenting, um, which limits the interaction and engagement. So that's different from co-parenting. And I think what's important to understand is that whatever kind of path um, that you find yourself that it it is uh, challenging and it takes time and it evolves over time. And so one of the things I tell clients often is give it a minute, right? Because there's this expectation that, okay, we're now divorced and whether co-parenting is going to be horrible or, or, or it's going to be great, you have to give it a minute. Um, and a minute doesn't mean a month because I can tell you right now, calling your lawyer back in a month and saying, see, this is why I should have had the kids hundred percent of the time and not do, you know, whatever kind of schedule. And that's not really going anywhere because it requires transition. It will in some ways kind of reveal itself, those holes and those gaps, but it does take work and it takes time. And I will tell you that I've had, you know, clients who, had just an acrimonious divorce that, you know, took several years and they, you know, were fighting over everything and post judgment, they were able to co-parent. A part of it was they were so exhausted by the process because the process can be exhausted. They were, I don't want to say broke, but they recognize how much money they spent over fighting over I should be the one buying the soccer cleats, not you. And so now we're going to buy both. And now we're going to, that it, it really, it really, I think took the two of them a moment to step back and say, what are we doing? We can figure out our rhythm. So I, you know, I've had that. And then, you know, there are other co-parents who try to micromanage each other too much in ways where, um, it's, it's not sustainable. Um, but then also to your point of what kids should know and, and shouldn't know, you know, I I've seen co-parents where they do things like we should share every holiday. Cause that's, you know, what, what the kids would want, or we should, you know, we'll all kind of put on this, like, you know, these airs and, and later they look back and they're like, first of all, our kids were miserable because they, they recognized that we were miserable. We didn't want to be there Two, you know, it just wasn't functionally, we didn't work well married. And here we are now having to, to try to, you know, act like it's all great that we're sitting around opening Christmas presents 
um, when it's all great and fine, but you got to find, you know, what works for you and, and how it works for you. Parallel parenting for those who are unfamiliar, it's not co-parenting. It really is designated in a way for people who oftentimes are high conflict. There are distinctive roles. It's to mitigate the interaction. But again, I reference working with your attorney to understand. Um, but also if you have the ability to connect with a child specialist in some jurisdictions, that may in times look like a therapist. Other times you might be in a situation where a guardian ad litem, a child for the, uh, an attorney for the child um, or a, um, a child representative is involved in your case. What's important I think is to ask questions, explore and, and then be open to, to all of these different um, things that are out there and, and available in a way of kind of moving to what I'll say, kind of the lighter piece of all of this process. I told you at the very beginning, I wanted to circle back because you referenced dating and, you know, um, having gone through all that you went through, it sounds like you were still very much open to the idea of love again and getting out there and, you know, share with us kind of, you know, that process of, of kind of saying, okay, you know, I've been through this divorce and it was a chapter in, in my life. At what point did you feel like, okay, it's time to now move on and, and to look into um, getting out there again? I did not make the decision to do that. I actually had okay. consciously said, I will never date again. <laughs> um, and I was always impressed about, by other women who I knew had been divorced, how they, they seemed to me to quickly start dating again, um, go on dating apps. And I would just like, how, how does that even work? Okay. Um, so to give you a timeline, I got divorced in 2017 and Kimberly, I was sick. I mean, just physically ill. Okay. My stomach was a mess. I was personally just a mess. And so it took me a couple of years to just recover, um, going to a doctor, you know, and going to a nutritionist for my stomach and just taking care of me. So I can say that the first two years, it was just about recuperating. I mean, there, you know, divorce is a traumatic endeavor. It is, it is truly, it, it'll work you over. <laughs> and again, it'll work you over. I, I think again, if I had different um, resources, it would, uh, I think it would have been a different story. And okay. so that to me is, is a lot of why working with you is so wonderful and working with my other clients and my partners is to minimize the effects that I felt personally for other people. Yes. That being said, in 2019, I told myself, okay, I'm ready to be social again. I wasn't interested in dating, but I did want to interact with people on a social level. So I joined a bowling league oh. and that was wonderful. So I joined a bowling league that was just a bunch of people literally thrown together. And it was really nice because the other people in my, on my team were other people. <laughs> or people who were newly to the area and they were using the bowling league as a way to meet new people also. And, okay. and so it was just very nice to just learn how to socialize because if you've ever bowled, 
right? You take your turn bowling, then you sit down and you wait your turn again. So you have time to chat with the person next to you yeah. until it's either their turn or your turn to bowl. Yeah. And so you've got this like round robin thing where you have a structured opportunity to interact with others. So to me, it's like um, social, social interaction 101. What yes. can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, then 2020 comes along and COVID hits and that reduced all social interaction. Uh, which was fine for me. And I worked remotely and, and did that. But one of the first things that was reopened um, for as an opportunity to socialize was tennis. And I had played tennis in the past. And so I decided to join a, this tennis league that was geared towards single players to combine them for mixed doubles play. Okay. And, and so I started going to this, this league and what I loved about the league is that you played and then afterward there was a social hour okay. um, at a local bar. And, and so from that, I got to interact with more people and again, practice my socializing skills. Yes. And wouldn't you know it, I met another tennis player who had a similar background as me and a divorce and just talking about our experiences and things we had in common. And I, I had said to myself, if I ever chose to date again, I would absolutely prefer to be with someone who wanted to play with me. Okay. Because as I age, I, I turned 50 this year, I'm very active. I want, and I, I don't plan on not ever being active. Yeah. Um, and so I want to be involved with someone who challenges me, who wants to accept challenges with me, who wants to explore new things and is adventurous. And, um, and I got to meet someone playing tennis. And, and so for your listeners, if they are, they were like me and saying, forget this, I'm not doing the dating thing. Yes. I say, keep doing the things you love and, but search for things that allow you to interact with others. So even if it's something as like, I'm a big knitter and knitting is a pastime you do by yourself, yep. but most, wherever you buy your yarn, they always have like a, a, a knitting um, get together like okay. once a week or so forth. And people can come together and ask about the pattern that they're working on or just sit around and talk while they're knitting. Yeah. And, and so finding ways to add a social component to your activities and things you enjoy, it may not, it may not put you in the space of your next partner, right. but at least it'll help you interact with others. Um, and I think that's so important. I think that's great. That's so fun because it's organic, right? It wasn't, it, it wasn't this kind of, let me get out there and, and, but it, it really, it followed your process and what you were most comfortable with. And, and, you know, and it just kind of has worked its way just based on those things that, that you like to do. Um, as you were talking about bowling, I was thinking, yes, you're right. It is very, it's a lot more social than I think we originally think about. Cause you're right. You go, you take your turn and then you come back and you sit with, you know, the four or five other people, however, you know, and, and so it does allow for that kind of built in socialization that for whatever odd reason, I never thought about in that way. Um, but you know, um, this is why we have these conversations because you learn something fun, um, all the time. And the fact that you're turning 50 this year, you, you guys don't have the luxury of being able to, um, see her, but I'm telling you, you would not guess that she's turning 50. Not that there's anything wrong with being 50. Cause that's, you know, a blessing to reach any milestone, but she is glowing in phenomenal shape. And so I, yes, I will Thank say, you. you know, black don't crack though. Right. Like, we <laughs> well, I will tell you. And I, 
And that's another thing too. I started taking better care of my skin. I, I never would wash my face at night. I wash my face at night now. I mean, just <laughs> do it all. We have exactly we have a skin that gives us a little grace as we figure things out. Yes, yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. It helps us. It, that, that melanin really does help us. <laughs> good deal. Good deal. Well, listen, I am so so thankful that you have joined me today and and really shared your experience in your journey and, and really given our listeners some great information about financial support as well as the domestic violence process and, you know, really owning that this process can be difficult, but as we, as we see and in talking to you that, you know, you can get through it um, and, and that it is, it is certainly something that you don't have to do alone and you shouldn't, and you shouldn't do alone. So, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing um, your journey with me today. It was my pleasure. I, you know, again, I love doing what I do. I am in the trenches with you with regard to supporting clients through the divorce process and just any life transition. All right. Because there's so many legal, there's so many um, transitions that have a legal aspect and, your insight is so helpful. So I, I appreciate these opportunities to just convey the things we do and how our experiences help others. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. Remember, though you may be going through a difficult time, you're grown and you got this. Please be sure to tell your girlfriends about us. Follow us on Instagram at Grown Girl Divorce and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss out on any new conversations. The conversations on this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to substitute working directly with a lawyer. These episodes are not to be used as a basis to support or defend any legal action and transcripts or recordings of the podcast may not be used for any purpose without the direct written permission of the podcast owner.